This is really for me saying women who are never going to code, I can't code. Women who are never going to be engineers or data scientists in AI, but women who are going to be in marketing, in sales, in finance, assistants in shops. The AI is coming for their jobs. The AI is going to be something that they will need to work with if they're going to be better at their jobs than somebody else. personal update, but very pleased to announce we closed a record-breaking crowdfunding round for Heights, raising £2 million in a seed round so that we can build the brain care category. Now, if you think of the time, energy and effort spent on skincare, hair care, oral care, it's staggering to think how little time we give to brain care. So at Heights, we make that easy with our daily smart supplement, nourishing and nurturing Britain's brightest brains. You can get £10 off a quarterly subscription with the code LEADERS at yourheights.com to start your brain care journey today. Thank you. Tabitha Goldstaub is a tech entrepreneur and artificial intelligence industry expert who is chair of the UK government's AI council and co-founder of Cognition X, which was before COVID the biggest AI conference in the world, but has understandably had to pivot to an expert advice platform. More on what that means later. It's a big industry pivot that we can talk about today. She was previously co-founder at Wrightster, which floated on the AIM in 2014. And she's also just written How to Talk to Robots, something we could all do with learning. So hopefully we're going to do that today. So Tabs, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Really well. Okay, we're going to do a quick fire round first. So quickly, robots or humans? Humans. Conferences, IRL or virtual events for life? A hybrid? No. Ugh, conferences in real life. Very good. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Writing notes on paper or using your phone? On paper, on paper. I know. I, I, said, that, I said that to you because the first time we met, we, ha- we were having dinner and you're the first person I've ever had dinner with who brought a notebook and took notes of things I was saying. It was hilarious. Uh, uh, <laughs> so it always me, just stuck yeah. out. Still the only person I've ever had that took notes of a, a conversation at dinner. It was amazing. A, a relaxed dinner. Yeah, exactly. There's me bullet pointing. Oh, uh, right. Favorite apps on your phone right now? Um, it's got to be Back Then, which is uh, an app that you can, um, it's like Instagram, but private. So I pay for it. So it's just pictures of me and my wonderful little baby and, and, uh, and family. Finally, stuck on a desert island and you can take three things. What are they? I would take my Kindle so I could read any book in the world. I would take the things that you need to make bread because I really can't live without bread. And I'd take um, a pen and paper. Very good. Pen and paper, I'm letting you off technically too, but I'll let you off. It's fine. Oh, sorry. No, it's all right. They can be attached to each other. Exactly. Okay, let's start at, I think the most curious for me, which is how did you actually come to chair the UK government's AI council? Just for clarity, what age were you when this happened as well? I was 31. It's pretty young to have a role like that in a UK government council, isn't it? It is. And I think that that's what um, the government was looking for at the time. So it was Matt Hancock and Greg Clark when they were the Secretaries of State of DCMS and Bayes that appointed me. And it was really clear that there were so many better experts to advise government, but there wasn't anybody who could be the glue to hold them together. And they needed somebody to do some do a lot of the legwork. And, and also, I think they were looking for someone as optimistic as me. A lot of people, um, when they're asked to do government roles, they've either done them loads, and so they've kind of are jaded by doing them, or they've kind of already said, the government's not for me, whereas I was like brand spanking new, 
so enthusiastic about the industry. And so it felt, um, I hope, refreshing and also enabled people to funnel their feelings through to government in a more open way rather than feeling like, oh, there's another closed door, same, same men, women, same, same and we've got no access to it. Instead, what I hope it did was it made people feel like, oh God, I can actually get involved in that too. And this became more collegiate. At least that's my hope anyway. So what is the UK government's AI council? What happens there? I mean, like, you know, I've seen enough spy films to just think that it's just like a bunch of random creepy dudes and you maybe (laughs) drinking blood, but possibly oil if it's from robots and just throwing weird evil orgies maybe who knows oh my god could you imagine i think there must be another council like that but it's not mine um no we are we are a group of 23 who are made up of some of the great and the good and some new guard but all experts in artificial intelligence from across different walks of life. So you've got entrepreneurs, you've got academics, you've got people from um, Scotland, you've got people from Northern Ireland, you've, you've got a real mix of... Uh, we were also the first council that was 50-50 male and female, 20% uh, non-white. So we've really kind of tried to make sure that it represents the UK ecosystem as best as possible. And what we do is we are there to sort of do three things. So one is to double down on the existing priorities that the government laid out in the sector deal two years ago. The second thing is then to horizon scan and see, you know, what's coming around the corner. And we've actually just written a roadmap for um, government at the moment, imploring them to uh, come up with a national AI strategy. And then the third thing is holding their feet to the fire. So I do really try and make sure that we are privately, not publicly, advising where things might be not going in the right direction. That's definitely the hardest part for me anyway. Interesting. So what is what is on the horizon? What kind of stuff have you covered in the report? Are you able to share some of the insights of the opportunities ahead? Yeah, so we've we split the opportunities into four areas. So one around data and infrastructure, another one around um, fundamental research, uh, another on uh, narratives and education and how do we you know bring people along on this journey. And then lastly, um, the adoption challenge that we have of making sure that this these are new technologies get from the fundamental research into everyday life and can um, bolster the economy and support society. And there are pieces in here around things like the National Digital Twin, but the concept is how could we add artificial intelligence and the ecosystems, you know, tools and talent to actually focus on making sure that that is truly scalable, which would enable the UK to make some quite big, bold decisions about things like climate change, um, things like you know clean air. And a lot of the challenges that we have is because we don't have enough data and information about our world. Others are just big, bold claims like we need to make sure that everybody in the UK understands artificial intelligence. And that doesn't mean that they need to build it. It just means that they need to be able to... Um, understand how it's affecting them and their jobs, their lives, how they play, all of the different permutations of our lives is, is being affected. And I think that when the web came around and there was, you know, huge energy around getting people, you know, digital and online, and we know some of the goods and the greats that were part of that, and they did an incredible job, people like Martha Lane Fox... And we need a similar campaign around artificial intelligence or we're going to really leave people behind. And and with the current looming economic crisis, I think that we'd be really remiss not to, to ensure that we're 
arming people with the tools that they need to understand this new technology that's going to change the whole way that people do work. Mm, I was actually going to bring up, you know, mutual friend of ours, Martha Lane Fox, and obviously former guest on the show, um, you know, does such a good job of helping, I think, educate people who, you know, typically including 100% of the listeners listening to this show, if you're listening to a podcast on AI and entrepreneurship in the future, you're basically in the 1% that aren't aware of the lack of literacy of basic web principles. The reality is, you know, so much of the population has already been left behind. So the fear and question that comes in is how much worse does that issue get exacerbated by artificial intelligence on top? And how do we make sure that we as a a country are moving forward, not being left behind at the rest of the world without creating even more of a gap? And I mean, what a time to have that kind of conversation as well. So be really interesting to hear your thoughts on, um, I guess, opportunities and fears at this point. It's that fear and opportunity that led me to writing How to Talk to Robots. I felt like I was at this sort of epicentre where I got to witness the future unfolding in front of my eyes and I was selfish if I didn't explain it to my mates. And I don't mean my friends in the industry or people listening to this podcast. I mean, like, my mates who don't really even they wouldn't even see a podcast like this and think it was interesting to them. And so what I tried to do was write a book which would encourage them to feel like this was for them. Artificial intelligence was actually to help them, not the, you know, there are lots of books out there that scare, I think, men and women into thinking that AI is terrifying. And it is in many ways awful for society if we get this wrong. But what I tried to do is is paint a more optimistic view. There is a whole chapter about risks, but there is a big chapter about the rewards. And what I have aimed at is a fun, lighthearted, you know, romp through history where I've just chosen all of the women that were involved in artificial intelligence. And then I've interviewed people like Martha Lane Fox, Kate Devlin, Maxine McIntosh, some really fun women who are taking artificial intelligence by its hands and making sure it benefits them. Sharmadine Reed, Amory, Semet. There's a kind of um, a spirit, and none of those women are uh, women are deep. I'm artists. sorry. Oh, sorry. Serious talking <laughs> to me, saying sorry. I mean, is there is there anything more perfect than your uh, artificial intelligence robot trying to speak to you in this conversation? Always saying I'm sorry. Yesterday, it asked whether I had fallen over and whether I was okay, and I was just rolling around on the floor with Otis. I was like. I think I'm okay. I've definitely not fallen over. But that's the whole point. This has got to not feel scary. And even though, obviously, there's a lot that we need to get right in order for it not to be scary, it has to be something that people feel um, attached to. And one thing I've noticed is that artificial intelligence is actually making some basic technologies easier. So... This podcast, for example, when you edit it... Yeah, we use an AI transcription service, yeah. I thought you might do. And it's a perfect analogy because we still have to correct things. It's not perfect, but it makes the job 10 times faster. Exactly. And also easier, simpler, more fun to do. So therefore, you probably do more podcasts, you probably edit more, you probably make a better outcome. And I feel like that is that same leap that we went from like needing very expensive engineers to make a website to something that I can do on my mobile phone in, in, in a day. And artificial intelligence is getting us closer and closer to enabling people to democratizing access to these, these tools. And I think it's even making like turning our TV on easier, making our houses warmer. You know, my mom hates remote controls, but she just talks to the TV and now it works. So there's this kind of moment where we've got to be very careful because our reliance on this technology can also be our downfall. 
But the more people understand and use the technology, the more that their, their buying power is power. So then they can start to vote with their feet, vote with their wallet, and be a part of that conversation rather than sort of blindly continuing to use Facebook or whatever apps that actually don't or jar with their morals, but they're just not quite sure that it jars with their morals. And I think that the that the opportunity is there if, if we can make this feel like it's for everybody. If we don't, and it just feels like nerds in their bedroom, we are in for a even worse widening of the digital divide, widening of the poverty gap. All of the things that we see today will just get worse. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Let's talk a moment about uh, about gender differences, and you know you've you've written this book, you know how, how to talk to robots, but a girl's guide. Yes, <laughs> love to get your perspectives on why you've specifically written this for women. Well, there's a there's a deeper reason, but mainly the jokey reason is because I think there are enough books out there for men. I don't know. Everything was a manual, and I thought we need a girl's guide because I want to arm women who had never thought that this was something they needed to care about. And there are a lot of initiatives out there for getting girls to code and girls to get into engineering, girls to become data scientists. Not a, you know, definitely not enough um, funding for, but there are a lot of initiatives. This is really for me saying women who are never going to code, I can't code. Women who are never going to be engineers or data scientists in AI, but women who are going to be uh, or are in marketing, in sales, in finance, in, um, you know, they are assistants in shops. 
the AI is coming for their jobs. The AI is going to be something that they will need to work with if they're going to be better at their jobs than somebody else. And my hypothesis, which I used to be really shy about saying, but my, uh, my hypothesis is that the traits that women or, or people who, um, uh, who identify as women have been sort of, you know, since forever been encouraged to have empathy, um, facilitation, you know, subservience, this kind of uh, deferential strategy that women have been ha- have had to adopt. I think that sets them in a really good position to work with artificial intelligence. And when I say work with, again, I mean work alongside something that has AI in it as a tool. Because there's this kind of problem-solving, questioning nature of working with something else. And that is what I'm the most excited about when it comes to the academic research around artificial intelligence is the sort of the human in the loop model and the and the team working model. So DeepMind, Microsoft, they are all now looking less at the man versus machine um, and more at the man, woman and machine together. And that just blows my mind in terms of opportunities that we could then see, because the whole point of artificial intelligence is it's meant to be able to solve problems that we ourselves as humans aren't able to understand. It's meant to further science. It's meant to further endeavors. And so if we start to think about it like that, men and women should have equal access to this incredible incredible opportunity. And I have felt like uh, AI fits exactly squarely into the same place that technology has time and time again, where it's, you know, bros in their bedroom. But this time, I don't think it needs to. That's what's so cool about AI. The number of women that are in leadership roles in this scenario, the head of the Office for Artificial Intelligence, which is, um, you know, the government's group of civil servants, is led by Sarah Karagani. The woman who's responsible for this at DCMS is, is a woman. And at base, you know, all the people I'm interacting with, Dame Wendy Hall, who wrote the AI Review as a woman, Fei-Fei Li, you know, that's just the UK, Fei-Fei Lu, who created ImageNet, which is what the first big database of images that AI was trained on as a woman, it's... There's a sort of a turning point. I'm hoping I just want to kind of jump on the bandwagon and push the bandwagon and like wave the flag for the bandwagon, run in front of it and tell people the bandwagon's coming. But that's but that's all here, right? As in, yeah. so when you look further afield over to the valley, because I mean, at the end of the day, without being too down on the UK, there's only so much impact currently in today's world that AI like is uh, of AI that's coming out of the UK, because of course the majority will come from China and Silicon Valley. And as I understand it, 99% of those designs are created by white men. I think it's like 90, 90. I think there is, there's 14% of AI experts in, in are, are women. So, um... Okay, so let's talk about that. What, what are the problems for the world, you know, in an unfair and unequal society like we are finally waking up to so clearly in 2020? 10 years later with these people so instrumental in the design, what are the challenges? What are the things that you you are particularly concerned about? So every time any technology is made by a homogenous group of people, it only works for that homogenous group of people. <laughs> We've seen it. Like my favorite story is around the car, you know, the cars, which um, test crash dummies were male shapes. And so women were dying. It's just, and we think it's crazy, but the same thing is happening whereby last week I saw a hand sanitizer um, that didn't work for black hands and only worked on, on white people's hands. Um, you look at the people who created that hand sanitizer, you know, automatic dispenser. And of course the team is all white. So it's like, we think, oh, 
<laughs> those people in the 70s, they only used male test crash dummies. And then exactly the same is happening in 2020 with artificial intelligence, but the scale is way scarier. I mean, obviously the scale of cars, but it is in the, the potential scale of how quickly these things become in everyone's pockets and everyone's phones is really, really dangerous. Kathy O'Neill, um, her book, Weapons of Math Destruction, one of my favorite titles of anything in the world. She, yeah, <laughs> she's brilliant. She um, and Joy Bolwami, um, who wrote The Coded Gaze and has just brought out an amazing movie. Um, they talk about how Joy's face was never recognized, and she has a, she's a, a black woman, was never recognized by any of the artificial intelligence that she was using to, uh, at university. And so she's now an incredible activist against this. But it took her, you know, months and months and months, years to get the big tech companies to agree to stop using facial recognition for policing. So only in the last few months has that happened and no and no one feels like that's something that we can trust them for and so it it's going to come down to governments to need to regulate and governments are scared to limit innovation and so we have this scenario as as the general public where we need to arm ourselves and protect ourselves while we wait for so we don't need to wait for governments but at the same time that can't be how it is. And I find it very frustrating to, to think about what are the other ways, what's the other collective power that we have? And you know, unions are an incredible um, force, I think, for good. And we need to think about other ways that collective action can come and we can come together to say, we don't allow for this. This isn't okay. Um, and I don't think we've done that enough. As a, And when I say we, I mean sort of me, my friends, the, my industry, my community. Um, have we haven't found a way in order to empower people to say this is not okay? What is your uh, biggest fear in AI? Two. One is that we don't use artificial intelligence to help us fight climate change. That we sort of miss the opportunity, and we're still adrift and trying to fight climate change um, effectively with policy change rather than also with technology. And then the other fear I have is that those same bros that created the tech companies that have created things like fake news and it, oh, sorry, enabled things like fake news to run riot, those same bros are in charge of the AI that we use day to day um, as a support for our jobs. So I have a beautiful vision um, whereby, and I would love this as a dyslexic, especially I, I feel really strongly about leaning into using technology to help, uh, to help me get my day job done, Swift key, Grammarly. Um, I'm constantly leaning on technology. Like when the keyboard doesn't work, I literally suddenly look like, uh, you know, I'm back being seven year old stuck in the classroom. I love leaning into technology and relying on it. But my biggest fear is that I can't do that because I can't trust the technologists. And SwiftKey and Grammarly at the moment, I think are great companies. But what if that AI that we, you know, almost like a, you know, our buddy becomes a buddy effectively that has been built by those bros that we can't trust. And so that's my fear, I think. Yeah, it's ultimately just all one big trust issue, right? It's who's designing it and how much can we trust it? And obviously every disaster film about AI that's ever existed is all about exactly that, which is there is, at the end of the day, at the top of the chain, not such a benevolent force. And certainly one that doesn't necessarily, you know, AI and empathy are not two 
compatible words, typically speaking. No, no, and they, and they shouldn't be. We we need the humans who are building AI to have the empathy, and we should never ever expect trust. Sorry, when I say we, I'm so bad at saying we and then forgetting to define who I mean. But the people who are building this technology cannot demand trust. One of the things I find really frustrating in our industry, in our tech industry, is people saying we must get the, the general public to you know to trust us, like really? Is that what you should be doing? Or should you be becoming more trustworthy? And it's Anora O'Neill, Rachel Botsman, two people that your listeners should, should, um, should read up who, um, or Nora O'Neill sort of coined this concept of demanding trustworthiness from our leaders, from our technologists, rather than expecting trust from the people who buy their products. And that's what I think we should be focusing our time on. We should as people who are influential in the industry should be finding ways to ensure that the general public who are buying technology are educated and so they, and they can remain untrusting. That's an okay environment for them to be in because that then means that when you get trustworthy tech, they'll buy that over the untrustworthy tech. Apple just rolled out this new coding on its on the app where you can see which applications that you might download how, what they do with your data so it sort of says there's sort of four little boxes and it says you know how long does it keep your data for what does it do with your data and i really wanted them to kind of color code it to make it even easier to see like this app is red like this is like the fatty foods that you don't buy in the supermarket or you do but at least you do so knowingly all the way through to green like this is super um this is super healthy for you and you can feel safe. Exactly. Best practice. The challenge is, is that it's such a mess out there. You cannot just put these apps on a nice clean grade, green, amber and red. And my kind of Pollyanna-ness in me still believes that it's possible. But everybody you talk to in the industry is like, Tabitha, you don't understand the complexity of what you've just described. But why? Like, why could we not demand more from our tech companies that mean that they have to fit into these boxes? And I'm okay with, like, buying fatty foods sometimes. Like, we all need, you know, I said bread's my favorite thing in the entire world. We all need a big bag of crisps sometimes. But we need to know that we're doing that. And I think that's the problem with this technology. We're not quite sure. Moving the conversation on, I'm really curious, you know, for what listeners that won't necessarily know, but, um, you know, you're the co-founder of Cognition X or CogX, amazing conferences that I've had the pleasure of participating in for a number of years. And most recently, the one in King's Cross was ridiculous. You know, you took over the whole of King's Cross um, for an AI festival, as you renamed it. Um, I believe you had about 15,000 people turn up. It was, you know, crazy, really brilliant ambition, really phenomenal. And you were the best host for our biggest stage. Very kind. And I obviously, therefore, uh, you know, got front seat to see all the best content as well, which was amazing, right? And the people that flew in around the world to, to contribute to that, that event was phenomenal. And yet here we are in a pandemic and the hard work that you've been building for years to, to make London, not just the center of AI for the world um, by bringing people together. And then obviously, you know, you've got, not just the complexities of Brexit and how that changes the view of whether London is or isn't the right place to do business like that in the world, but then a pandemic where no one can even fly. You've had to cancel your event. The very thing that was at the heartbeat of what you do and why you exist has been ripped from you after years and years of hard work. So how, how's that been for you? How has this year been in that context? 
You give me goosebumps just thinking about it. When you put it like that, it's even sadder. I always used to say that we, the reason why COGX was so wonderful is it had the, the heart, of, heart of a meetup at the middle of a 15,000 person event. And the pandemic showed that that heart of the meetup was still there. I had just come off maternity leave. Um, Otis was four and a bit months old, five maybe. If I'm really honest, March the, was it the 15th when lockdown finally happened? I said to Charlie, my business partner, like, okay, we're done. We, you know, we had a good innings. We did our very darndest. Like, this is the time to say, um, we won't do a conference this year, but we'll heads down and we'll figure out what to do in 2021. And I was so ready to quit. And I think, you know, sleep deprivation and new motherhood where your risk, your appetite for risk just plummets or minded and it was a combination with then just the fear that the world was imploding I mean we had conversations that I'm in shock even now looking back around food shortages and people dying you know friends and family always knew somebody who had somebody who had died and I cannot believe to think Anyway, so this was me. I was sort of in not a good place. And then Charlie, my business partner, who is the ultimate um, visionary, he was in a totally different headspace. He was like, well, we've never really been a conference producer anyway. We've always been a tech company. We have always been about connecting expertise. This didn't touch the sides for him. It was amazing. He, and obviously he was concerned about people's health and welfare, but he pivoted in his mind before we'd even pivoted the business. He was so ready to go virtual. And we had, I remember, you know, (laughs) tears. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of energy spent on trying to figure out what was the best thing to do. And ultimately he convinced me and I convinced my team with through gish gritted teeth, to be honest, like that we were going to go ahead. And in order to be a good leader, you obviously need to show a good face. And so I put on my like smiliest, happiest, um, we can do this guy's face. And we did it. My God. And it probably wasn't for a month that I feel happy. I was really, I felt like I was just really struggling with the concept of trying to do something good. And then And this sounds really grand and a little bit arrogant, but the thing that changed my mind was I thought to myself, well, how else are people going to do business if they don't come to COGX? And that sounds so ridiculous because there's many other ways, but there was this feeling of, well, the reason why we loved COGX was because people, we loved the stories afterwards where people say, oh, I got my funding. I got my best deal. I got my, and we were like, well, let's, we've got to do that online then. And that's really what drove drove me through and the team were amazing I I managed the content team specifically and they were signing people like John Kerry and Anne Applebaum and it was just like we were having the time of our lives all of a sudden and we'd forgotten that a physical event was even a possibility I think everyone's mind shift we stopped saying oh wouldn't it be great if and that was a really liberating feeling. We were just like head first. And even now, when we're looking at next year, we're planning for a fully virtual conference with physical elements. And we have really benefited from the feeling of more challenges around like things like serendipity, but more opportunity around the different people that we can get together on a call. 
we'd have to worry about our climate impact in the same way of flying people to the same place. I'm really excited about next year and the idea of sort of bringing small groups together, of course, oh, hopefully if we can, of course, uh, you know, rules and health depending, but bringing small people together, but still making this festival as accessible as possible. We had 45,000 people watching online and that is a huge, you know, that's, you know, three, four times more than we'd ever had before. And so we've hopefully affected for the better more people's lives. And the video on demand afterwards obviously gets views in the same way that everything does online, but the networking around the content's amazing. I learned a lot about myself. Uh, you know, when your back's against the wall, um, you really have to kind of fight. And I personally needed to fight for somebody else. So I wasn't good at fighting for our business. I was much better at the thought that I was fighting for someone else's business and for the UK economy. I mean, I, I had like grand delusions of like what I was fighting for, but that's how I got out of bed every day rather than thinking it was for our business, which is strange, but it worked. <laughs> but I guess I guess for people that don't really have the context, they don't necessarily know, like running a physical events business like you were, that was the core, certain costs, I be really interested to find out obviously as much as you're willing to share you know at the point of realizing this wasn't going to happen how much runway did you have how much money in your bank how much how many people did you employ what was the fear around how many people you'd have to let go and how has that changed how have those realities changed since since realizing you can exist as an online business we are we were never only um an events business that's meant that we had the software business to to bolster and support our revenue anyway but also we have sponsors that were in a similar kind of shock to us this sort of there was a month where it was like do we go ahead well we're obviously not going ahead how do we do physical do we not do physical and our lead sponsor microsoft was commendable i mean they were so supportive but there were sleepless nights i mean i i won't go into the finances it's, it's really not my area of expertise um but there were sleepless nights for everybody i think and how many people did you employ well the, the core team is about 35 40 um flexes and then when you're doing running a festival 200 300 400 people i mean it's also a physical festival is incredibly expensive in terms of people on the floor on the ground and you know staging and this was the, this was a year when we were able to um you know actually not have those costs which allowed us to be quite creative it was kind of a good feeling towards the end. You know, I miss I miss building stages, but I don't miss walking 30 kilometers a day between them, trying to fix things that were broken. And, you know, the year before we had torrential rain. So also there was a part of me that was sort of safe inside. I mean, that's ridiculous. But, you know, running an event is physically like the most draining thing you can do. Oh, obviously, sorry, that sounds ridiculous. They're probably like, you know, doctors and nurses and, 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 and people with proper physical jobs on might the be a Doctors and Nurses conference you're not familiar with. Now that's real. Stressful. Oh God, yeah. Oh Surgery dear. Conference. I just you know, put my foot in it. But for me, it was exhausting. I mean, it sounds, I sound very privileged to say this was exhausting, but I, I do think that there's something magic about what's going to come in the future, which is a mixture of both. And Charlie and I, um, we looked at what we'd created for COGX and realized that uh, we shouldn't just be using that for our own events. So the big pivot we've done now is that we've opened up the platform to all content partners. So you, for example, could run your own conference, um, the fun conference or, you know, your heights conference on our platform with all of the tech that we have, all of the marketing, all of the things we've kind of solved for, like the networking piece, the how do you actually get people from YouTube into the platform to actually interact? Like we've solved a lot of um, flow issues. And so... 
we're now handing the, really the, the tools over to as many content partners as we can. So I'm excited to see we could have a platform that every day there was five or six live events running on the platform because it's, they're not restricted by our team creating the content. You know, we hopefully will be five, 10% of the content that's on any week. I can, I mean, I can hear how, how positive and hopeful you are, which is awesome. And it's really interesting because it's like, if I'd have spoken to you in February or March, would that have been the worst time in your life to have spoken to you? Like, you know, I guess like, how has your mental health fluctuated in just your journey of, of, of COGX and what you've had to deal with? Um, so that's the first part of the question. And I guess the second one is, you know, it would be an assumption to assume that, you know, that's the worst period of your life. But, you know, I guess if not, really fascinated on the other side, which is, you know, what, what's been the toughest day that you've had to deal with, uh, like mentally and emotionally as a founder and, and how did you deal with it? So it wasn't the toughest time. Um, and I think that's because I quite like tricky situations. I'm okay with big, really naughty challenges. And Charlie, my business partner, uh, you know, loves them. He lives off that feeling. So together, I think we were able to solve that. I think really what the the challenge I had for my mental health was that I wasn't at my A game. So I wasn't able to sort of step up in the same way that I might have if this had happened before I had had a baby. And I was quite shocked at how hard it was to get my brain into gear. You know, they talk about like baby brain, they talk about sleep deprivation and I heard it, but I didn't believe it. I was like, oh yeah, but no one knows. I'm, I'm not a big sleeper anyway. Like I've got the adrenaline of a, I'm like the queen of stress. I used to say to people, I can go from like stress to, to calm, like an athlete could go from, you know, 100 to 80. And I just didn't have this, I didn't have that in my locker anymore. I was just like an absolute wreck. Um, and that I think was really interesting for me to like manage and become strong again. Because when you have a baby, or when I did anyway, I became quite vulnerable. I was like all about looking after and making sure that you know, my baby was okay. And that was it. There was no, you know, there was really nothing else. I was very fortunate. There was nothing else I had to worry about. You know, we lived in a nice house and we had food and I was able to just focus on me and Otis and, and my partner. And so anything external felt so terrifying and getting my brain into gear, that transition was really quite tough. And people don't talk about it or maybe they do and you just don't listen. Before I decided to get pregnant or thought that I was brave enough to do this, I used to have these dinners with other women and I would like couch them in AI dinners and COGX dinners. And really I'd be asking about how they dealt with like childcare and sleep deprivation. Should I have a baby? But I never asked, obviously. But I would, you know, get people around the table like Hannah Fry and Anne Martha came to one where we would talk about this. And if I look back now, I'm pretty sure they warned me it would be this tough. But I, you don't want to know. And you feel like you're not really allowed to talk about this because it's a luxury to be able to, you know, have a wonderful family. And so that's been really difficult. And it still is difficult even now. And he's one years old and I'm still trying to figure out like how much time do I dedicate? How does the day split up? How does my year split up? And that has been, that's been tougher, I think, than, than anything else. And knowing, you know, everyone always says you feel guilty, whichever you're doing, looking after your baby or working. And that, that I think has been more of a challenge. It's kind of not trusting myself. 
Yeah, I think that's such an interesting one. I had that, uh, someone said that exact thing to me this week, which is, you know, that is the key problem with a young child is you're stuck in always feeling guilty. Because if you're not with your child, you feel guilty you're working. If you are working, you feel guilty you're not with your child. And you can't get the balance right because there isn't technically a rule on the balance. And you feel guilty if you're enjoying working as well. Because you're like, oh my God, I'm loving this. I haven't thought about him for 20 minutes. I haven't thought about him for two hours. And then by the time they're one, I personally don't think about him all day because I'm working so hard. And then you're like, oh God, oh God. It's interesting how we're able to compartmentalize things. So if that's if that's not the hardest challenge that you've had, so if this year hasn't been the hardest challenge, what has been the hardest challenge for you? What was that moment? The transition from Wrightster to COGX was pretty hellish. I haven't spoken about it for ages, but we, um, Charlie and I have, have worked together for 12 years. I started a business called Wrightster with him back in 2015. A long, long story. It kind of spun out, spun out of another company that he, he had created called T5M. And the business... Uh, had IPO'd. We had an amazing, amazing board that then the makeup completely changed because we then started acquiring other companies. And effectively, uh, it was just no longer a place for Charlie and I to work. And we left in different guises, but we left where I left with no identity. I didn't know who I was at all because I was Tabitha from Wrightster and I was young. Uh, we IPO'd when I was 20. I must have left when I was 28. And I had only been Tabitha from Wrightster. I'd like lost my surname. I'd kind of lost everything about me. I didn't really know. I was just, I just was work. I hadn't had a long-term relationship. I had been in New York and London and then Sydney and across Europe. And I just was my Blackberry. And once I'd left, the bottom fell out for me career-wise. I just was like, and confidence-wise and I was just like, whoa. And I had no kind of persona. It sounds like a strange word to say, but like I had no, I didn't know who I was as like a person. <laughs> and Catherine Parsons, was, who's also a mutual friend of ours, she was amazing. She was like, you kind of need a brand. And there's another woman who's a friend of yours and, and mine also called Priya Lakani. She was like, you need brand Tabitha. I was like, gross, no way. I don't want to be that. That's like not me at all. But they're like, no, it will really help you feel like you're you and then the business is the business. You don't need to just be one in the same thing. And I thought that was kind of like almost disloyal to the business and the team. I couldn't work it out. But they really, you know, them and other women um, helped me come on this journey that I am now on now where I very much feel like I love the business. I love the team, but I'm also my own person. But those days in the middle were pretty dark. Um, And coming out of the back of them, you know, I was able to fall in love and meet the person that's the father of my son. And like, because I knew that I was, I was more than just work. Couple last questions. How have you found that your happiness is directly correlated with your success? So directly correlated. That's something I've got to work on. Well, Directly correlated, and yet I now can close the door, walk across to the kitchen where my son is, and then start a whole new world of happiness. So I have been able to split those two. So I can be, I, I have now been able to have two types of happiness. But my work, my work happiness is directly related to my success. Fair enough. Okay, um, what's the most hurtful piece of feedback you've ever heard from a colleague that really hit you? I once said self-defecating instead of self-deprecating in a meeting. That was pretty bad. But no, I think the feedback I get from a colleague, I was once told that I was very angry and that I had, you know, I had felt like quite bullying towards somebody. And that shocked me because I think I'm just passionate, but it can come across as bullying sometimes. And what did you do with that feedback? How did you work on that? 
it was really tough. And so what I did was I put something in, in my diary that said EOP, which was end of play. And in that end of play, it had some bullet points that said, check everybody you've spoken to today and make sure that they're, in, they're okay. Um, and then the second one was check you're okay. And then it said, um, don't, you know, don't leave the, the office without, um, you know, saying goodbye to everyone. Because what I think I would do is I would just storm out because I'd be so passionate. And so um, it was quite funny because this, this was a long, you know, quite a long time ago. And I, you know, I would throw blackberries if I couldn't make the printer work. You know, I kind of thought that was cool. And now I realize that's so not cool. But what's interesting about it is that it was pre being people being able to see your diary. And then suddenly people could see my diary uh, online and the, and the team found this EOP in the back of my diary. They're like, no wonder you're nicer to us all. <laughs> and I'd been rumbled. Um, okay. What is um, the best piece of advice you've ever been given? My grandmother said, um, read the question and the answers will take care of themselves. And she stole that from Einstein but I still think it's her quote. And I think that what she means or what, he, what, what Einstein was trying to get at is spend most of your time, 90% of your 100 time on the question and making sure you fully understand what you're trying to achieve before diving in to um, the solution. And it's still the best piece of advice because I so often don't heed it. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you've got for other people listening, particularly people interested in the future of the world and the way that artificial intelligence will impact it? What's the best piece of advice that you might have for listeners there? Be the change that you want to see in the world. So don't expect that somebody else is going to be that change, but start to live the way that you want things to change first and then bring other people with you. So be a great educator as well as a doer, because I think that the people who are listening are the people who are thoughtful enough to seek out things like this, and so that they've got so much to give. So if you can be the change, you can then empower others to do the same. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tabitha. It's been a pleasure, as always. Thank you, Dan. Next week on Secret Leaders. We just had a series of unforced errors in Q1 of 2019 that really set us back at that moment and really was a wake-up call for us to really change the way we build products and run the company. And frankly, that has enabled a great growth spurt for us over the last couple of years. One thing about HubSpot that I think we're good at, we make too many mistakes, but we never make the same mistake twice, I would say that. We learn from our mistakes. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. That was Brian Halligan, the founder and CEO of HubSpot, who are on track to be a billion-dollar revenue company this year. That's not a billion-dollar valuation. That is a billion dollars in revenue. He is a SaaS powerhouse. If you haven't heard of HubSpot, where have you been? He joins us next week with an absolutely brilliant episode focused on customer experience and customer excellence, but also a little bit on his journey with HubSpot and his vision for how he's building in the category of software as a service, also known as SaaS. So enjoy next week.
We want to make this podcast as good as it can be, and we need your help to do just that. So, what do you think would make it better? What conversations should we be having that we aren't? What kind of guests would you like to see us interview that we haven't got yet? Tell us on social or email us on hello at secretleaders.com. Thanks. If you'd like to hear more leadership stories, we now send a weekly email newsletter. It takes less than a minute to read and provides some enjoyable factoids about great leaders so you can impress people with your knowledge and maybe even become a better leader yourself. You can sign up at our website, secretleaders.com. This episode was brought to you by me, Dan Murray Serta. I encourage you to follow me on social at Dan Murray Serta for all sorts of stories on mental health and entrepreneurship. But we've also got our social channels at Secret Leaders back up and running now too. So go follow us there, particularly our brand new YouTube channel, where you'll be able to see interviews just like today's on video. If you enjoyed today's episode, screenshot and tag us to share the episode or tweet us. It means a lot. And if you really loved it, why not review us please too? It only takes a second. This episode was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Harry and Daniel at Lower Street Media, artwork by Charlie Stopford and bringing it all together, our head of podcast, Will Stolliman.